0: Uh, he sent me a picture of Moose, who is a Percheron stallion, and he's very, very large. Uh-huh. Because uh-huh. he knows that I f- hate horses.
1: <laughs> this seems like classic Jake. Put on a meditative record and then send you the thing you hate
2: to look at. Yeah, just <laughs> shit posting to this record. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, longtime connoisseur and archivist of the sounds of bloodthirsty insects and distant fireworks.
1: You're quite the archivist, Sean.
3: Yeah. <laughs> it's a running theme, it's a callback.
0: Well, I'm co host Jeremy. I, too, am archiving something. I started a blog to archive each victory that Brentford Bees have over Chelsea, and now I have made my first blog post. Man,
1: you, uh, 2000s, you two, 2007 is a great year to be alive.
2: I knew you were going to bring <laughs> this up. Uh, I, I'm Jake. I'm the cutie the bomb at the beauty salon that Kanye was talking about. So, <laughs> Well,
1: well... That's the first time that a guest has uh, introduced himself before all the other co-hosts have introduced themselves.
2: Oh, I'm really sorry, Peter. I'm still I- I'm still trying to collect myself after this this microphone malfunction.
1: I know you you spent a lot of time trying to get in from the green room, but we're so glad to have you here. Uh, I am co-host Peter, and look what I've done. I've made a fool of
2: everyone. <laughs> Ooh. I'm not yeah.
1: sure I'm not sure if I was referring to the Jet song or the Beatles song. I was trying
2: to remember the name of that band. And thank you for the saying Beatles. The Beatles. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that does in some small way relate to the record that you brought with, uh, to us on this episode, Jake. We might yes. get
2: there eventually. I believe we may.
0: So <laughs> what record do we want to talk about, Jake? Hey, Jake, uh, how are things down
2: in uh, Nashville or whatever? <laughs> well, Jeremy, you, uh, you silly goober. Things are going great in Knoxville, especially because I have uh, been hanging out on my porch listening to Paul Horns Inside the Taj Mahal, which is the record uh-huh. that I have brought for you all today. That's yeah. a good
3: record. Let's talk about that one, huh? All right. I'm going to call the
2: authorities on you. I wish you would. I wish you would, you little coward.
0: I'm
2: going to bring a horse to your front yard.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, We uh, the last time you were on talking about Daryl Hall and John Oates, we also established Jeremy's dislike of horses.
2: True. Yep, this is canon at this point. Yeah.
1: Also, that uh, Daryl
3: Hall and John Oates episode is now officially our number 10 most listened to episode of all time, so we had to bring the guest back for another round. See if he still got
2: it. I'm coming at it harder than I did last time. So
1: yeah, with uh. this uh, meditative record <laughs> coming in <out> strong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, should we uh, feature a, a track and talk more about it? That that makes a whole lot of sense. That thing you
3: just suggested. How about we start with side A track one. Prologue slash inside.
4: 66 and this is singing and flute in the dome of the Taj Mahal
1: feel as though you have attained a greater sense of self-actualization after listening to that?
2: Nah. I think I'm invincible, honestly. The back pain I've been experiencing lately is gone.
1: Just like that, after two minutes of us talking over that track we were just listening <laughs> to. <laughs>
0: My radiator stopped leaking antifreeze.
1: Well, that's something. Yeah.
3: And for only forty nine ninety five a month, you too could learn the secrets that we have just attained. Wait, it
2: costs money.
3: <laughs> well, I don't know what we're talking about, but it might be made clear eventually. <laughs> Do we want to talk a little bit about this specific Paul Horn record first, though? Absolutely. Sure.
1: Yeah, he he made a little announcement right there at the beginning. What was that about?
3: So it's just what he said. He's actually just playing a flute right there in the Taj Mahal in the main area underneath the dome. And there is some accompaniment from two different unnamed guards of the Taj Mahal. And this record is known as one of the most important albums in the formation of what is now known as New Age music was also paul horn's best selling album
1: yeah it's worth mentioning that this is from nineteen sixty nine correct
3: yes, recorded in nineteen sixty eight and released about a year later in early nineteen
2: sixty nine and yeah he recorded it after closing time. am I correct on that um <laughs> Part of the record is during the last hour of when the Taj Mahal was
3: open, and part of it was, the guards liked the music so much that he was allowed to stay later and
2: do a little more flute jamming. <laughs> this guy bops. <laughs> <laughs> let's hear, let's hear them reeds play, baby. I guess or no, it wouldn't be a reed. What's a flute?
1: <laughs> it, well, I think it it's it falls under the reed category, even though it doesn't actually have a reed on it wind instrument
2: i uh the only thing i know about wind instruments is that sean made me learn how to play a wind instrument to be and um a band that he just made up <laughs> that's <laughs> i forget about that one sometimes <laughs> it was a blast
1: yeah that's how we came to know you yeah, correct yes part of the story but we won't go too far into that we'll stick on mr paul horn here
2: yeah, we've got a different story to tell tonight. Um it was this this is his second foray back to India. Correct?
3: Yes, this is was during his second trip to India and he had uh visited the Taj Mahal I think several times on his first trip and was excited to go back. The first trip that he went there he played inside the Taj Mahal in like one of the smaller adjoining rooms just set up, played, no one yelled at him. He was like, whoa, that sounded awesome. Wish I could play in the main room someday. And then when he returned, got to make it happen. But before we get into the specifics of the story surrounding the recording, I'll just give y'all the briefest bio on Paul Horn. He was born March 17th, 1930 in New York City. He grew up playing music and he majored in clarinet and flute at Oberlin.
1: He said he was born March 17th, Mm -hmm. you know he has the same birthday as billy corgan
3: (laughs) i'm glad you completely derailed me to share that (laughs) important information with everyone yes
1: st patrick's day true that's true and gene uh
3: uh, more importantly he shares a birthday with uh my child oh oh yeah (laughs) right 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 eloise hartman Anyways, it it was worth derailing you, you shouldn't
1: overlook that detail.
3: (laughs) Probably not. I suppose that should be mentioned, both the Billy Corgan and Eloise Hartman. Anyways, (laughs) Paul Horn, the guy we're talking about, we keep forgetting, born March 17th, 1930, New York City, studied clarinet and flute at Oberlin, and then received his master's from the Manhattan School of Music, and then by 1957... He's out on the road playing with the Chico Hamilton Quintet, one of my favorite jazz groups. And he quickly becomes one of the most in-demand West Coast jazz session players. He's done records with Duke Ellington, Nat King Cole, Ken Nordine, Peggy Lee, Cal Jader, Bolasete, and many others. He also appeared briefly as an uncredited beatnik saxophonist in Roger Corman's 1959 film
1: Bucket of Blood oh we've, we've brought that up on the podcast before <laughs> it's, it's a, a classic starring Dick Miller
3: stone cold classic and just as a, a brief example of how respected of a musician he was on his 1961 album The Sound of Paul Horn the front cover proudly features a quote from Miles Davis who said about Paul he plays the horn the way it should be played <laughs>
1: Miles thought he was pretty clever for that, yeah, I was hoping you
2: were just gonna leave it that he plays the horn, <laughs> big, bold quotes on the front. Can you
3: believe it? Miles Davis knows who I am.
1: <laughs> I'd be pretty excited if Miles Davis knew who I was, so
2: yes, yeah, to be fair, yeah, yeah,
0: even if he got the instrument wrong, I'd still be like, "Hell,
1: yeah, yeah, even if he yelled at me. <laughs>
2: Jeremy Ruggles, my favorite ska artist. (laughs) So
3: it's worth noting, as we said, that he is proficient in flute, clarinet, and also saxophone, being the in-demand session player that he was. So as we said, this is his second trip to India. He's played flute in the Taj Mahal before and wants to get in the main room and hopefully even record some of the sounds just to kind of have as a personal reference or kind of a souvenir of his trip so the story goes that he was in india the second time because he's producing a documentary on maharishi mahesh yogi and the transcendental meditation movement on april 25th 1968 he visits the taj mahal and this is during the day late afternoon he speaks with the guard who is present and the guard Gives him permission to come back at eight thirty, which is one hour before it closes, and said he could play his flute for a little bit while it's less busy. Man, so he just
1: had to get the permission from the guard. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. He didn't
3: have to like submit any letters or anything. It was a
2: simpler time. Well, there was still like quite a bit of of tensions, you know, sectarian tensions at that time. I mean, there still is today, but at that time, and so I was kind of shocked reading that. The I mean, I, I guess. The uh, the guard didn't necessarily think Paul Horn matched the description of a Hindu nationalist or something, but I was kind of surprised that he was like, "Yeah, come on in, whatever." Yeah,
1: yeah. I think nowadays there would be a lot more red tape. Mm-hmm. Probably.
3: So Paul Horn returns in the evening at the scheduled time and walks up to the guard who has his back turned to him, taps him on the shoulder, and realizes, "Oh shit, this is a different guard," and. <laughs> He is just confused, doesn't really know what to do. His assistant is already setting up the recording equipment because they thought they had permission. Paul's talking to this new guard, and this guy is like, no, this is a sacred place. This is a tomb. You can't play in here. And as Paul has stated in the liner notes of the record, he responded with, but you sing in here, don't you? And the guard said, I sing to God. And then Paul said, well, I play my flute to God clever he pulls out his flute (laughs) blows a low c note and said that it was as if the entire room was filled with the sound and it just hung there and the guard just stood transfixed in amazement of the sound and paul kept playing after a few minutes he looks up and notices that the guard is now smiling and seems like very excited about what's happening and paul signals for the guard to do the call that he often does during, uh, while he's showing the Taj Mahal to tourists, they would do their Hindu calls to showcase the natural reverb of the building. So that's what we heard on the track that we just listened to on the
2: introduction track.
1: Wow, it's incredible.
2: Something I've been wondering, do you think that perhaps someone, a guard would let... A sitarist come and do the same thing, but in the Bass Pro Shop pyramid in Memphis.
0: <laughs> For those who don't know, that thing's like a giant pyramid. It's, it's the largest so pyramid in the world.
2: Bizarre. Yeah, or it's bigger than all the pyramids of Giza. Anywho, <laughs> but it's also a Bass Pro Shop.
1: Well, I think you need to find out, Jake. A all been right, in Jake,
0: it. you have a mission. <laughs>
2: I'm not a sitarist.
0: Yeah, matter. We just got to go find
2: the guard
3: at the Bass Pro Shop. Yeah. The last time I was there, the only
2: thing the guard told me is, "Hey man, you ain't got to wear that mask." <laughs> <laughs> like said I think I will. So it sounds like they'd be down for our plan
3: then. Let's go. Let's go shred at the Bass Pro Shop. <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: I think you should go with a base and say I thought this was the base pro shop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, they oh, have that God. posted
2: on the walls that any bass jokes will get you evicted or kicked out.
1: Oh, <laughs> I, yeah, I would, I would get kicked out of that place real fast. Mask <laughs> or no mask.
3: Uh, so, a last note here. The weather was very hot while Paul was recording this even though it was in the evening and in fact while playing he said his arms were covered in mosquitoes and you can actually hear one buzzing for just a little bit at about the 42 second mark of the next track that we're going to hear agra
1: uh, listen <laughs> listen for that mosquito buzz
3: <laughs> get ready it's <laughs> the most high profile mosquito sound of all time <laughs> oh wow so as I said, Paul intended this to just be like kind of a souvenir recording. He just wanted to keep it for his private records and had no intention of doing anything with it, which is probably why the singers on the record are unnamed and uncredited. But he takes it home to America with him and plays it for some friends who are just in awe of it and convince him to try and get it released. So he takes it to the label that he was currently working with, Pacific Jazz, and they ended up turning him down. And he just kind of gave up. And then about a year later, he plays the songs for a friend who works at Epic Records, and this friend is immediately enthusiastic and gets him a record deal for this weird little album that he's got. It seems that Epic didn't really think it was going to be a hit, wasn't really sure what to do with it. The the deal that was given was a little loose. Paul just asked for a $5,000 advance, and they even gave him 100% of the publishing rights on it, probably because they didn't think that this record was going to be of any value and he has said that owning the 100% of publishing rights has been like one of the most profitable things he's ever done.
2: Big ups to the boy for really really finessing that one.
3: Yeah (laughs) just squeezing it in real quick. As of 2001 the BBC reported that this album has sold over 1 million copies.
2: Damn.
1: Hot damn.
3: Which again it would have been nice if the two people who are contributing vocals to this huge successful album ever got paid or credited i wonder if they even like knew or that mosquito yeah (laughs) the the true victim here
1: (laughs) if that mosquito's still out there
2: get your lawyer (laughs) (laughs) better lawyer up (laughs) you got some royalties coming your way i was uh, another thing i noticed on this record i think it's on a on a tune that we'll we'll cover a little bit later on but uh, on Shah Jahan, when I was listening to it for the first time, I was like, this sounds familiar, and I realized that I uh, have definitely used like that same opening melody for a Dead Man's Lifestyle track, so Paul Horn, while you're out there, Law, you're the fuck up, bud. <laughs> you sure it's not going to have to be the other way around? I don't know. I don't know how Law works. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you heard about this record after you did it, so therefore Paul owes you. Yeah. Yep. Fair. I mean, if you listen to this record long enough, you don't really know how time works anymore, guys. Mm, All you know is that it's a flat circle. Yeah.
1: Valid. Valid. Well,
3: you guys want to hear that mosquito sound? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've been hyping it up. Everybody wants to hear that fucking mosquito. Let's go. All right. This is side A, track five, Agra, Mosquito, featuring Paul Horn in the Taj Mahal. (laughs)
0: It was a brilliant choice of instrument to use the flute in that space. As the flute, unlike most instruments, you know, when an instrument makes a note, it actually makes a bunch of different sounds at the same time, and all those other frequencies are what define, you know, the sound of that instrument. And a flute actually creates very, very few extra sounds. So when in a place with a ton of reverb, you don't get all those different frequencies clashing with each other, and you just have like more pure, simple tones, and you can hear him taking advantage of that so that he's kind of playing off the sounds that are reverberating in the room. And I think that's clever as fuck. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah it, it he's definitely i mean his his sense of place like amongst the reverb uh is i mean i mean clearly like what makes this record so special but like it, it it really is brilliant yeah he said in the liner notes that a note would hang in the air
3: for over 30 seconds yeah and yeah that was that was his first instinct while just Improving in the Taj Mahal was to play some notes and then, like, to play a chord because you could just play three notes and then it sounds like a chord with the notes hanging around, and then to be able to improv- improvise over top of that. And it's
2: wonderful. Do you think that same, like, sort of that same sound? I mean, clearly the mosquito, the Pied Piper, like, do you think it just attracts vermin and pests? <laughs>
3: It could be. I'm glad someone's finally made this connection. Yeah, Galaxy Brain Jake over here, you know. <laughs> uh, Paul also stated in the liner notes that the the reverb from the Taj Mahal seemed to keep the notes intact way more than other large buildings that he had played in before. And he was struck with the clarity and beauty
2: of the reverb.
1: Yeah, it's no post-production here. This is all naturel.
2: Mm-hmm that was my first thought is like sort of realizing, whoa, this is pretty much like just a field recording and it sounds like everything I try to do when I make my shitty ambient music.
3: (laughs) And it's just part of a a long history of, you know, decisions for songs and albums that seem just like last minute, like, oh, let's just throw this on here. No one's going to care. And then it's their career defining, Happy accident, right?
0: Yeah. And creates a genre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's wild that, like, if that guard was just a little more stern, there just might not be new wave <laughs> or uh, new, <laughs> new... <laughs> new age. It, it created new age new and age. new wave.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually, going back to it being almost like a field recording, it reminded me kind of of a, like an environments record almost definitely it's so yeah. sparse and yeah the the flute sounds so I, th- I think there's a reason that you often hear the flute used in movies and in film and television as this kind of denoting naturalism because it's probably one of the most natural sounding instruments
2: yeah yeah that's like little little cherubs or don't they play flutes or something like that pan flutes i haven't known any cherubs <laughs> or, i don't know or harps harps yeah i'm not very good with mythology i'm sorry <laughs> hey you can make your own mythology you goddamn right i can exactly i support you i think that's that might come back up at some point
1: <laughs> so that the the name of that track it was agra yes is that correct See, I think that I hear, I think like aggro, but that's obviously not what that meant.
2: I, Sean and I were sort of have talked about this a little bit, just um, in various phone calls. But I, I was, I, I wasn't sure if I should be cynical or just like, yeah, maybe like he had to like, as Sean said, like maybe he just had to throw like track names on this, but like, like last minute. But it's it kind of not very creative. It's just like naming things that. Are around him like okay? You've got Mumtaz Mahal. Okay, that's that's Shah Jahan's wife. That's buried there. It's in Agra. Shah Jahan is another track. Then you just have things like Vibrations and Unity. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Mantra one. Yeah. <laughs> well, that
1: shows how much I know about the location of the Taj Mahal. I, when,
2: I, when I teach about India and specifically the Taj Mahal in my like intro to geography class. One of the pictures I use for the Taj Mahal has Oprah standing out in front of it, and I'm not trying to be funny necessarily. When I, the first listen through I did of this record, I just pictured Oprah, like, outside listening to it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: hey, yeah. If Oprah had been around, she would have jumped on this record. Oh, Maybe. Featured- you know what,
3: guys? I'm going to mention Oprah again in a few minutes. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, goody. <laughs> <laughs> So there's a there's even more story surrounding this record. We're just kind of we're going to peel this story back like an onion. We've learned about some of the basic details, some of the little bit of knowledge that's commonly spread around this influential record. However, there's more going on. So Paul making this kind of meditative new age record is definitely inspired by his interest in Indian classical jazz fusion music that he had been doing over the past few years leading up to this. He even played on Ravi Shankar's portrait of genius from 1965 and had released a record called in India in 1967. And then in
2: Kashmir cosmic consciousness also in 1968. I I didn't get a chance to listen to that one, but I was really intrigued because I, I, something that we will probably talk about at a certain point is like, appropriation and setting and whether or not it was perhaps even like, okay to do this. But Kashmir in particular, I was like, Jesus God, Kashmir, but also a very spiritual place. It just so happens to be a place people might nuke each other over. Yeah. I mean, and there's a
3: whole history around this time too, because there was a lot of people in the hippie generation that were traveling to India and painting it as this place of spiritual freedom, you know, to go on these, journeys and quests to there but um it, it wasn't really a great place to live at that point there was uh there was a lot of tension there was a lot of shit happening and still is
0: and a brutal caste system
2: mhm yeah we're we're really only what i mean a, a couple decades removed from the original partition of uh you know India and Pakistan so it's um yeah less or uh, just about 20 years yeah, yeah. And especially like doing well, this is maybe we can bring this up later we'll, but a thought on his uh his, sort of his beliefs in the Taj Mahal, being into transcendental meditation, which is you know more of a Hindu thing, but then playing it at a a site, a holy site for Muslims, uh is like probably not something he thought about, but maybe. I don't want to totally shit on the guy.
1: <laughs> well, Who knows? I think that uh, people weren't quite as aware of uh, cultural appropriation and whatnot at, th- at this point in time. Certainly,
0: <laughs> The hub of Transcendental Meditation is in Fairfield, Iowa, <laughs> where I'm going to be playing a show in a couple days. <laughs> <laughs> like, actually
1: yeah if you're in if you're in fairfield and you you're you just heard that and got really excited it already happened by the time you Oh, true. <laughs>
3: but hopefully you were there and a legendary time was had by all so as we said paul horn's back in india and he's here to make a documentary on the maharishi mahesh yogi When i first read that on wikipedia i was like i wonder if that documentary is around can i find it like what was going on and the more i dug into it i realized that paul horn was not the only guy hanging out with the maharishi at that exact point in history there was also a very famous visit from some other westerners there paul horn was at the ashram studying alongside the beatles donovan mia farrow mike love and a handful of other celebrities
1: yeah, 1968 was the time to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened to Mike Love from that point? <laughs> <laughs> he's, well, you know, it's funny because the famous uh, Rock Hall speech where Mike Love like goes off and he's, you know, kind of like out of his mind. Uh, he he says that he had forgotten to meditate that day. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so he
2: got something out of it. <laughs> That's what I'm going to start doing when I have a hangover. Just Because he, when he said forgot to meditate, he just meant I'm out of cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> Mike Love is like the poster child for Serenity Now and
1: Sanity
3: Later. <laughs> God. Very true.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was why at the going back to Maharishi at the beginning of the episode when I quoted that Beatles slash Jet song, Sexy Sadie. Uh, that was originally called Maharishi John Lennon. It was a a dig at Maharishi and George Harrison, who was the main reason they were there had Lennon change it.
3: Right. In fact, the majority of the white album was recorded during this brief trip,
1: it was written during that trip or
3: written. Sorry. Yeah. The majority of the white album was written during this brief trip.
1: Yeah. That was actually the last thing that Lennon wrote before leaving India. (laughs) Was that song "Sexy Sadie" or originally "Maharishi"? It was
3: also the time when Ringo Star Ringo Star finished writing his very first song.
1: <laughs> "Don't Pass Me By."
3: Yeah, he'd been <laughs> writing it for about five years, and he finally wrapped up song number one in 1968 <laughs> in India.
1: In, in, in that little country ditty is what. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <it> t- <laughs> it took him that long.
3: Oh, Ringo! Also, those kind of like. Country folksy songs that are on the white album are mostly because Donovan taught uh, Paul and John finger picking during this time.
1: Ah, like Blackbird and
2: mm-hmm. oh. Peter. This is, I mean, something that you might have in that massive brain of uh, incredible music facts, but was Norwegian Wood the first song that to be broadcast to Western audiences containing a sitar? Do, do you, does that. <sighs> Ring any bells?
1: It's up there. Uh, there were some kink songs that at least had an Eastern influence that may have predated it. I'm not sure they had sitar on them, though. Gotcha. Like, See My Friends is one of them, but I don't recall if there's actually sitar on the track. But, yeah. I, c- I can't say for sure.
2: Listeners, if you know, DM Jeremy.
1: Yeah, or email us at i'd buy that podcast at gmail.com.
2: And include a picture of a large horse.
1: No.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, you got all these celebrities traveling to India in 1968, learning about meditation, finding themselves, going on their spiritual quests. And a lot of the Western world is paying close attention to this. You know, the Beatles had already been making waves with their... Foray into psychedelia and, you know, trying LSD and everything. And at this point, they wanted to try something different, give up the drugs and seek inner peace. And this sparked this whole Western interest in India and culture and meditation and all this. You know, the groundwork was there. You had beatniks in the 50s that were traveling to India. But once the Beatles did it, it just like it took off. And This coincided with the hippie movement in the States and this whole cultural shift that's happening and people wanting to, you know, go against the social norms and move beyond material possession and things like that. And all these guys were just kind of at the right place at the right time. As we said, Paul was there making a documentary. It's unclear whether the documentary was scheduled ahead of time, but during these few weeks at the ashram studying under Maharishi, there was actually two different documentaries that were attempted to be made. They flew a camera crew in and apparently John and George just hated the idea and refused to be on camera. And it sparked the Beatles and several of the members leaving early. So I feel like it's very possible that this documentary didn't get finished that Paul was working on. Maybe they started at the ashram and then decided like, Oh, well let's just get some footage of around India and, you know, spread the word of the Maharishi. And Jeremy mentioned you're going to be going to the U S headquarters of transcendental meditation. This is probably a term that a lot of people are familiar with. Maybe we have some followers of it. Maybe people who are just curious, but it is, still very widespread movement there are millions of members including many celebrities who have been practicing it and highly recommended the short list includes Jerry Seinfeld Katy Perry Clint Eastwood David Lynch and Oprah
0: oh and Jim Carrey
3: it's a wild list of celebrities that are into transcendental meditation and that is also a whole entire rabbit hole of study there the more you look into it the more it seems pretty clear that transcendental meditation is completely a money grabbing scam like maybe it didn't start that way but there's some sketchy stuff
2: going on and the maharishi was a billionaire by the time he died. When I was in undergrad I remember walking I'd just blown a job interview and I remember walking back to the to my bus stop and this uh, this white guy in like a some sort of like robe get up got up uh, like like walked up to me and was like uh you know hello hello my brother um you know are, are you familiar with transcendental meditation and I was like uh you know a little bit you know I studied geography yada 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 and he hands me a copy of the Bhagavad Gita and he's like you know I hope you read this and I was like well thank you and uh he was like you know yeah you know peace upon you and I walked away and he was just like hey also um That is 20 bucks. (laughs) I I was having such a bad day already. I turned around and I was like, fuck you, man. (laughs) Fuck you and your
1: enlightenment. Hustler. Yeah, the, the capitalist ties with
3: transcendental meditation is kind of the biggest critique. And that was one of the big reasons why the Beatles very publicly burned the bridge with Maharishi and the TM movement pretty much as soon as they got back. They just stated that he was too into material possessions and like it seemed strange that there was always an accountant by his side <laughs> and he seemed to know way more about <laughs> figures and business dealings than a holy man probably should. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, the current, the Maharishi University, or it was Maharishi International University that they set up in Fairfield and now it is the Maharishi School of Management Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. Yeah,
3: it's like on the surface, you know, would the world be a better
0: place if everyone learned how to meditate? Probably. Yeah, there's scientific evidence <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in favor of meditation as a practice. So just to be clear there, it's more about the the movement that TM is specifically tied to we're talking
3: exactly because their whole thing is like we're just trying to create world peace by teaching everyone to meditate but then you have to pay money to be a part of it and if you want to advance in the group you have to like then buy their products and like the tm movement owns businesses they own like beauty supply businesses they own universities (laughs) they own buildings like the maharishi owned multiple private jets and lived in a multi-million dollar mansion but would like claim that he didn't believe in material possessions because none of it was technically in his name he just
2: was the one that controlled the multi-billion dollar empire westerners were just like so desperate for some feeling of like peace and enlightenment and what started off as learning is like meditation just ends with like mk ultra (laughs) you know (laughs)
3: Uh, I saw someone critiquing TM as being the McDonald's of meditation,
1: mm-hmm. you know, because
3: they basically just took a page out of like the evangelical Christian movement and was like, "How do we take a religious thing and dumb it down so anybody can be a part of it, and then charge a bunch of money for participation?" <laughs> Works every time.
1: Is it really any wonder that the songs that the Beatles wrote while they were involved with Maharishi ended up being the songs that influenced? Another cult to go kill people? The Manson family. Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Uh, What a weird thing. Let's let's, Let's talk about Paul. Let's 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 backpedal off that a little bit. also, you know, we don't want them coming after us. Uh, they seem to have a lot of power.
3: (laughs) Yeah, they are still a powerful organization.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They got a TM on TM.
3: Yeah. Anyway, Paul Horn was a a follower of this. He studied under the Maharishi. He wasn't just making a documentary. Uh, He was a long time, I believe up until his death, was a follower of the TM movement and wanted to spread awareness on this. So it's something that's kind of inherently tied with this. And it's just, it's interesting how deep these uh, spider webs of music history seem to go. It just connects everything the more you look into it. But anyways, you guys want to hear another track? Yes.
2: <laughs>
1: I think I, I'm ready to transcend. I,
3: I need to
2: chill out after
3: thinking about some of the things we just discussed. Yeah. So while listening to this next track, I want everyone to practice their yogic flying so we can really achieve world peace during this podcast episode. This next one is called mumtaz mahal and this is the one where starting at about the one minute and 45 minute mark you can hear some fireworks in the background which paul said the fireworks were over half a mile away but you could just perfectly hear the faint echo jump into the music and it's
1: it's kind of beautiful and whoever was lighting off those fireworks deserves royalties too (laughs) (laughs) once
3: again (laughs) let's talk about some ethics but first side a track three the fireworks in that one
1: yeah distantly
3: Mm -hmm. i never thought of them as being that i just assumed it was like maybe someone like tapping on a part of the wall or something right like
2: a footstep Mm -hmm.
1: i listened to this for the first time today not knowing that it was recorded in the taj mahal and i think i was listening to it under not ideal circumstances i was like rushing around trying to take care of a bunch of different things (laughs) doing dishes and laundry and fixing food like under duress and i realized that that I was like this is not how this album is supposed
2: to be processed (laughs) cool fucking flute dude whatever all right i gotta talk about this
1: it was very counterintuitive to how it should be listened to and and you know, it, we're we're sitting here listening and chatting, but I'm I'm hearing more now. Like the, knowing that it, you know it's recorded in the, the Taj Mahal and knowing the circumstances, it, it really it, I think it I understand why it's the birth of New Age. It, it like achieved its best form at birth, like immediately. <laughs> yeah, and everything that's come since then is trying to replicate what Paul Horn accomplished here. Sure. That's yeah. my bold claim. <laughs> bold claim.
2: Yeah, it's it's almost like uh, what's that one performance where you just like sit there and don't do anything, and like John Cage. John Cage's yeah, uh, four thirty three or yeah, yeah. It's like I mean, okay, you can go like I mean I think more people should go and play, you know, woodwinds in you know very large open spaces, but like, you're just gonna be doing the Paul Horn thing. You know, like it was, it's like almost immediately perfect. Mm -hmm. There's been so many times where we've
3: covered a record and it just doesn't make any sense to me why it became successful. Like who would be buying this? But this one definitely makes perfect sense to me. You got people that are buying it who are into meditation and just want music with, that's got that, that mellow vibe, you know, there's the Paul Horn fans. And then there's just people that are curious and also... As we've said there's just so much appeal to the natural beauty and simplicity of this record which was something that would have been even more striking in 1969 when this was released because this was a time where it would not anybody could just go get recorded it was the big recording studios you had to get a record deal small home studios were much much less common and i think you know, this record inspired and started the new age movement, but it also has trails throughout DIY home recording and field recordings in general.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's when I was listening to it, it's just like, you can imagine like a Uttar Pradesh, like sunset. uh, And I mean, I I don't know to what extent he was trying to sort of invigorate a sense of place, but you just, it it excels at it so well.
1: I have to think that our, former subject of a previous episode, Bernie Krause took some inspiration from this record. It had to have. Yeah.
3: It was all part of the seeds of this movement starting. And another big one is the umbrella genre term world fusion, which you could also tie into like the Exotica episode that we did on Martin Denny, you know, in a lot of ways that was really just a world fusion of just mixing you know, influences and instruments from other cultures with some kind of Western jazz and pop and things like that had been happening a lot, especially in the jazz world that Paul Horn came from. He played a lot of Latin jazz crossover stuff and had, you know, like we said, become interested in incorporating Indian classical. Uh, There had been work mixing traditional Japanese music and jazz, you know, the whole jazz and, um, brazilian music like bossa nova was happening all around the same time so there's this increasing interest in all these different sounds and this one this record
2: just came at the exact right time for that i i think going back to martin denny which is i was excited to talk about this because martin denny obviously came to mind and like sean you introduced me to martin denny i i think like something that martin denny does I had a a colleague one time that described Martin Denny's music as like creating Shangri-La, which, you know, Shangri-La, yes, is like, you know, supposed to be paradise in China, but like has been bastardized to the point that it really has no meaning other than like a nice place. And like, it's been represented in so many ways that it doesn't have any actual cultural ties to where it's supposed to be, which is like in the Himalayas, maybe in Tibet, But I feel like the opposite sort of happens here, right? Like I I don't think, I don't think this album is supposed to create an alternate view of like the Taj Mahal, or even like 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 I said, I don't know if he was trying to create a sense of place here. Uh, I think he does a great job of it. But I don't think it's forced or like ugly, like which once love Martin Denny, but uh, sort of like an ugly bastardization of like what it's supposed to be.
3: Yeah, he definitely plays all of these pieces with a sense of awe and reverence for the place that he's in. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not just coming here like, oh, let's see what this dumb pop song sounds like with all this cool reverb. That That's what the kids want, you know. <laughs> He's approaching it from a completely different angle than what would have been common in the music industry and it struck a chord with
2: people. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's motivated and pardoned pardon for the problematic term but like like I feel like a lot of Martin Denny stuff is like like music of the quote-unquote orient which has no actual sense of place and it is completely abstract, really.
1: Yeah. Well the the word exotic is kind of inherently problematic right and the fact that the genre is named exotica like yeah has not aged well
3: i think this record also belongs in the long tradition of what's commonly known as mood music which started you know in uh, various composers in classical music and then you have orchestrations and easy listening of the 40s and 50s And then the whole new age movement is really just a continuation and repackaging of that. Um, Because like at the heart of this record, it just, it captures a mood and it's consistent with it. And, you know, you can just lose all sense of time and space while playing this record. And then, you know, the new age movement continues and the world fusion stuff informs it. And then you have like experimentations with electronic music in Germany And then before you know it, we've just got lo-fi hip-hop and, like, Vaporwave. it's all just the
2: same tradition. (laughs) This is absolutely... uh, This is flute that you can study your sleep to. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
3: Lo-fi flutes to study to. (laughs) And I, I also love the whole fringe spirituality mixing with capitalism angle of this story. I feel like that can also be connected... To some other things we've talked about, especially the environment series with Irv Tybell, you know it's a mix of something cool be, being created, but maybe the intent isn't entirely great. Um, I was also reminded of one of our Patreon episodes about Harvey Spencer Lewis and his Rosicrucian records. Oh yeah, recently There's, released yeah. to
1: the public uh, mm-hmm. in our main line of episodes as a bonus. That's true. The Rosicrucians did
3: a lot of meditation music and used that as a part of their their selling point. <laughs> so it, the, the history of new age and mood music has plenty of con artists and pioneers and visionaries and people who were just accidentally inspiring a whole bunch of things like Mr. Paul Horn here.
2: Yeah. It, and it also like, uh, to me, I mean, this whole time period, really sets up for I mean talking about like capitalism and not only this kind of music but like the whole like attempt at finding enlightenment at the time I mean that's what leads to like the cult of Rajneesh and um, uh, Bikram the yogi that uh, you know was an absolute monster and like the uh, I think it's like the 90s like I mean those things all sort of go hand in hand unfortunately and
0: neoliberalism.
2: And neoliberalism. They're all connected. Do you think yeah, Hillary but... Clinton likes this record?
0: Probably. <laughs> she probably doesn't know it. They they probably play it at her yoga class. So,
2: Imagine a Bill Clinton Taj Mahal saxophone record.
1: I was just... I oh was start- my god. <laughs> I was starting to wonder about that. Genius. <laughs> I... I'm just imagining him, like, announcing it in his voice at at the beginning.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, y'all. I'm about to play my saxophone in the big tomb. (laughs) Here at the Bass Pro Shop.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you boys have any recommended albums that actually exist? Sure do. (laughs) Uh, Jake,
3: you want to give your recommended album first, though?
2: Yeah, I am uh, w- w- one of the first things that came to mind here was was Tony Scott's music for Zen Meditation, a clarinetist uh, trying to uh, get in with uh, some of the Zen Buddhist vibes of Japan.
1: It's Tony Scott.: Yeah. Okay. I was thinking of the the
2: director of Top Gun, not the same guy.: <laughs> No. well, <laughs> allegedly. allegedly. <laughs>
3: Uh, Tony Scott was actually kind of a similar thing to Paul Horn. He was a jazz musician that started messing around with some other stuff. And the record that Jake just mentioned, Music for Zen Meditation and Other Joys, from 1965, is often cited as the actual first New Age record. But this Paul Horn one is is the record that really just set things off. And the Tony Scott record is a fairly cheap one to find, too. So if you're into this and you want to complete your early new age music collection get on it a few other recommendations here of course we got to talk about the legendary steven halpern
1: uh, i was wondering when that name would come Mm-hmm. yep previously discussed on the podcast by jeremy
3: yeah so paul horn's the precursor in the late 60s and by the time steven halpern drops his first record spectrum suite in 1976 then the movement is fully underway all Stephen Halpern records are good, though, but if we're looking at early influential records, Spectrum Suite is the one to start with. Another previously mentioned guy, Herbie Mann, did a record called Impressions of the Middle East in 1967 that is another fine example of some really mellow, kind of blissed-out world fusion stuff. Once again, Herbie Mann at the the front of all the trends and never got the credit
1: yeah, on my April exclusive monthly playlist that I just completed and is now available for our $10 a month patrons over at slash I buy that podcast. Herbie Mann was one of the artists that I used as a similar artist to Paul Horn.
3: Hell yeah. Uh, another one Irv Teibel's Environment 7, also from 1976. That one is called Induced Meditation. Another example awesome. of the, the mid-70s and everyone was just ready to fully capitalize on this new age movement <laughs> <laughs> trying to get paid.
1: Irv Tybel also previously discussed mm-hmm.
3: on the podcast. And my last recommendation, another 1976 record and one that is in my long, long list of records that we'll talk about someday. George Deuter's Celebration from 1976. As I mentioned, there was a lot of electronic music being made in Germany around this time that became very influential. And that one is a prime example of some German ambient new age sounds.
1: George Deuter to be discussed on the podcast in the future.
3: (laughs) Get ready. (laughs) Well, anybody got any final thoughts before we play this last track and
0: sign off? Yes. I want Jake to tell the people about his
2: music.
1: Mm. He did. He did make a little reference to it, but Yeah, give it a feature.
2: As someone who has also perhaps problematically um, used field recordings in which people in a different country are speaking or singing, um, you can find (laughs) Dead Man's Lifestyle, which is, uh, I wouldn't, I don't know that. Can you hear that train? I'm sorry. You can Oh, uh,
1: trains have been on the podcast many times okay. before. Yeah, trains yeah. are great. <laughs> We're no
2: strangers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, you can find... Uh, I don't know that I would call it meditative music. I think l- the last time I was on the pod, I mentioned, like, yeah, I have this project called Dead Man's Lifestyle, but God knows what I'm going to put anything else out. Well, I did, by God. And uh, you can find uh, Dead Man's Lifestyle on Bandcamp, uh, new album, uh, Love is White as Snow, that I uh, it took me, like, five years to record, so...
1: Yeah, just it took you as long as it took Ringo to write that
3: one yeah. song. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Who did a better job? Jake Watkins or Ringo Starr?
2: <laughs> Am I the fucking Ringo Starr of ambient music?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's actually uh, that's something to be proud of. Is it? Yeah, you did. You did a whole album. It took Ringo
0: that long just to do one song. Oh. Yeah. Oh.
3: Also, I've heard your album, and it fucking rules. I can officially highly recommend it. Thanks.
2: I wrote most of it in Kalamazoo. Nice. Must be why
3: it's so sad, then.
2: Yeah, it is. Dang,
1: y'all
2: <laughs> I, that don't live here anymore just dropping. It wasn't supposed tomb. to be terribly sad, you know, just melancholy, like most ambient music. I'm not very original.
3: <laughs> Speaking of unoriginality, we're gonna hear the song "Unity" to close out this episode
1: by Queen Latifah. U N I T Y.
3: This was actually uh, Queen Latifah's main inspiration. Was this song?
1: Makes sense. Yeah, definitely.
3: Canon. A little bit of info. So remember we talked about how he had set up with the first guard to get permission and then came back and it was a whole different guy. About halfway through the recording session, the first guard that he had met previously ended up coming back, apologized for being late and had brought a friend with him who was a very talented singer. So the majority of the vocals that you'll hear throughout this record are actually the second unnamed singer who came and joined in. And Unity is a really cool example of Unity Paul and this guy. Yes, <laughs> Unity. The track Unity is a really cool example of Paul and this unnamed singer, kind of doing a call and response back and forth. In the liner notes, Paul stated that to him it was the perfect example, perfect example of music being the universal
1: language. Aww, Paul knows how to sell it. I will say that.
3: Yeah, that's true. And then after this record came out and was huge, he basically just stayed in the new age vein for pretty much the rest of his career. He didn't really go back to the traditional jazz too much.
1: And he's no longer with
3: us there. He's no longer with us passed on. I think maybe about 10 years ago, something like that. But yeah, he did um, a lot more records in this vein. There's inside the great pyramid. There's the sequel to inside the Taj Mahal and, he even did some collaboration records with the before-mentioned Stephen Halpern. Lots of good stuff to dig into. So
1: Excellent. Well, thank you for bringing this on my radar. I've, I've known Paul Horn's name, but now I know what he's about, and I'll be listening more, way under better circumstances than rushing around. I will give this album a focused listen.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you all for having me on the pod again.
1: Yes. Thank you for, for joining coming us
2: back. again. Absolutely. How many what's the, the the most uh reoccurring guest? Taylor Rowley. I'm coming for the crown. Getting... <laughs> Are you
0: You're already trying to take Peter's spot. You already jumped ahead of him in the intros.
2: I... Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're coming for me first, I think. <laughs>
2: yeah. Look, this record didn't work on me. I'm still very on edge and you know, I'm coming for everyone. <laughs>
0: Inner peace and outer success. That's what the the Mahavishi people say. <laughs>
1: yeah, but the dead man's lifestyle is take over everything you encounter. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman.
2: I'm Jake Watkins. Pretend I said that before, Peter.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we'll clean up and post. <laughs> All right, this is UNITY by Paul Horn, Side U-N-I-T-Y. A, Track Four. U-N-I-T-Y.